0: Charles Borromeo once said, Do not give yourselves to others so completely that you have nothing left for yourself. Welcome to the 72nd episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want everyone to remember that you have to take care of yourself and your own mental and emotional well-being in order to have the strength to help others. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, the Britney Spears documentary has brought up a lot of feelings around mental health conservatorship and the problems that often arise when conservatorships take place, so I thought we could chat about that. It's well known that Britney was placed on a conservatorship in 2008 after experiencing a mental health-related crisis, and her father remains her conservator at least through this year. Let's start with what a conservatorship actually is. Here in California, a conservatorship is the legal term used for a situation when one adult, the conservator, takes on the responsibility for overseeing the comprehensive medical and mental treatment for another adult, a conservatee, who has a serious mental illness. Individuals might be placed on a conservatorship after a lengthier psychiatric hospitalization, and it's temporary, meant to be reviewed over and over until the individual is deemed to be able to be released from the conservatorship, meaning that they're in a place where they're able to make their own decisions about their mental health treatment. Interestingly, Britney Spears' mother has shared that she believes Britney's mental health struggles from 2008 were related to postpartum depression, which most likely would not be a reason for her to continue to be in a conservatorship so many years later. Combine that with a life of being constantly followed and criticized by the media, and you've got a very difficult world for a young person to navigate. None of us can possibly say if Brittany should be on a conservatorship right now or not, but I think it's important for all of us to realize that conservatorships do serve a real purpose for helping individuals with severe mental illness get the help they need when they're unable to make those choices for themselves and not making those choices would lead to dire consequences. While at the same time, we can recognize that the system is not always good at moving people through the process in an efficient or effective manner, these situations deserve to be reviewed repeatedly to ensure that mental health care is given in the least restrictive manner possible. On to the next topic, the New York Times is covering the deepening depression that is coming along with more COVID lockdowns across Europe. With curfews, closures, and lockdowns in European countries set to drag into spring or even the summer, mental health professionals are growing increasingly alarmed about the deteriorating mental state of young people who they say have been among the most badly affected by a world with a foreshortened sense of the future last in line for vaccines and with schools and universities shuttered young people have borne much of the burden of the sacrifices being made largely to protect older people who are more at risk from severe infections but the resilience of youth may be overestimated mental health professionals say in italy and in the netherlands some youth psychiatric wards have filled to record capacity in france where the pandemic's toll on mental health has made headlines professionals have urged the authorities to consider reopening schools to fight loneliness and in britain some therapists say that they have counseled patients to break lockdown guidelines just to cope. In the United States, a quarter of 18 to 24 year olds said that they had seriously considered suicide. In Latin America and the Caribbean, a survey conducted by UNICEF of 8,000 young people found that more than a quarter had experienced anxiety and 15% depression. And a study conducted last year by the International Labor Organization in 112 countries found that two-thirds of 18 to 29-year-olds could be subject to anxiety and depression. The lasting effects on suicide rates, depression, and anxiety are still being measured, but in interviews, a dozen mental health experts in Europe pointed a grim, painted a grim picture of a crisis they say should be treated as seriously as containing the virus." If you've been experiencing these types of mental health symptoms during the pandemic, know that you are not alone. And also know that there's hope. There is help out there to navigate the struggles that come with all of the isolation, loneliness, and depression. Let this moment in our world's history be one where we become radically willing to get involved with those around us. Check in on them. And show them that we actually care about how they're doing. And let it become a moment where we all make the decision to speak openly and vulnerably about our own mental health stories. To not only help those around us know that they aren't alone, but also to transform our suffering into something powerful. Something that leads to a community of support. Something that changes the world around us. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to Blessed Peter Donders. Born in 1809 in the Netherlands Peter was the oldest of two children and his desire to become a priest from a very young age was strong but he wasn't able to attend school for very long because of his parents financial situation. He worked in a warehouse to help his family make ends meet but eventually got involved with a local school as a servant among seminarians and he was given some education on the side. Continuing to try and follow God's path he applied for the Redemptorist in 1833 but was turned down. Same goes for his attempts to join the Jesuits and the Franciscans. Unsure of what to do with his life, he enrolled in college to learn theology, all thanks to a generous benefactor who paid his way. Through his studies, he became interested in the foreign missions and went to the bishop in 1839 to tell him about that interest. The bishop was so impressed with Peter's zeal and passion that he accepted him as a missionary, and Peter was ordained a priest in 1841. He traveled to Africa, living among the people, and by 1850 he had baptized 1,200 individuals. His letters from that time expressed his anger at the treatment of the African people forced to work on plantations in the area where he was stationed. He tended to the sick during an epidemic, took care of 600 lepers, and advocated for the government to provide health care for the sick. In 1865, the colony where he was stationed was assigned to the Redemptorists, and the Order was so impressed with all of his work, they asked him if he would be willing to join. He was vested with the habit of the order that turned him down 30 years prior. He died in 1887 at age 79, and I think Peter is another wonderful example of someone who found a way to be what God made him to be, even in the face of poverty, rejection, and a life of being denied access to the path he thought was God's will for him. He kept the faith alive. Kept pushing forward, and for that reason, he's a wonderful friend for all of us who have felt every door closing in our lives, not knowing where God wants us to go next. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Healing God, you showed your wonderful mercy toward lepers through blessed Peter Donders, your priest. By his example and prayers, may we serve you through our loving care for those in greatest need. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Elizabeth starts us off, I was in therapy trying to deal with my experience with infertility and after a year of therapy and three years of trying to conceive, I got pregnant, thanks be to God. So I stopped attending therapy and now I'm concerned about my disposition to postpartum depression. Do you have any advice for pregnant women who might want to get ahead of any potential PPD concerns? Let's all start by joining in prayer for Elizabeth in thanksgiving for the conception of her baby and to give her and her family strength as they prepare emotionally for what lies ahead. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. First off, I just want to say what amazing strength you have shown through the long journey of trying to conceive, through reaching out for help for your emotional well-being, and now by wanting to prepare for what might lie ahead, you definitely have given us an incredible witness, so thank you so much. Preparing for the possibility of postpartum depression is so very important, especially for those who have experienced depression or anxiety or other mental health symptoms in the past. And as we've discussed before, our entire healthcare system is so woefully unprepared to help moms with their mental health during and after pregnancy. So getting ready ahead of time is crucial. With that in mind, a real quick first step. Prepare those around you to be supportive of your emotional and mental health needs ahead of time. Get your partner, other family members, and close friends on board with the idea that you might need their help, might need them to advocate on your behalf to get the help you need if PPD becomes a part of your journey. Make make a list of people who can help you, people you can text who will drop everything to come over and just sit with you without having to be told what to do. I might also suggest considering getting back into therapy. It can be really helpful to have this place to unload and process the thoughts that are sure to come up as a new parent. We have to realize that PPD impacts up to 20% of mothers, and the thoughts that PPD drives through our brains, specifically that we aren't good enough, that we aren't able to take care of our children, are things that, can, that we can prepare for by coming up with a plan through therapy before they come on. Since you've experienced depression in the past, this opportunity you have may be a good time to make a list of warning signs, a list of things that came up in the past that your family and close friends may want to be on the lookout for. Avoiding social outings, not taking care of yourself in terms of hygiene or eating, too much or too little sleep, whatever the symptoms were that helped you realize you needed help in the past, they should be written down somewhere to help you be able to recognize them as soon as they pop up in the future. And last, make a promise to yourself that you will get help if things start to pop up in the future. I like this little mantra from pipandgrow.com. I, Elizabeth, am a strong and capable person. I am also about to embark on a physically rigorous, emotionally difficult journey. I promise to accept help on this journey. I will not think less of myself. I will not feel ashamed for asking. I am worthy of receiving help from the people who love me? All right. Know that we're praying for you at civil underscore Philip is up next. I suffered some traumatic events in the summer of 2019, which awoke a long season of anxiety and depression. Unfortunately, I engaged in means of self-harm during the peak of that season. Thankfully, I'm no longer within that mental space and have been recovering with the help of therapy, medication, community, and prayer. However, I now find that I have the disposition to considering self-harm as an option when I'm feeling bad. Uh, from simple daily tasks, such as replying late to an email or missing somebody's text. It saddens me that I know uh, that I consider this as an option in the most mundane of situations, and I'm confused to why this is now my mental vo- in my mental vocabulary of dealing with difficult situations. Why does self-harm become something difficult to forget as an option once it is chosen? And what are ways to cope with that ingrained tendency and not feel worse that you are unwillfully considering to do that? Please join me in praying for Philip for peace in his heart and for everyone working through self-harm that positive coping skills may come along that provide a safe alternative for getting through the anxiety and hopelessness that darkens our days. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Let's start by taking a moment to pat you on the back and send some praise your way for the incredibly positive steps you've taken in terms of your mental and emotional well-being. Breaking free from the habit of self-harm as a coping skill can be incredibly difficult and I just want to recognize how awesome your progress has been. At the same time, it's important to recognize how frustrating it can be for those thoughts to still bounce around in our minds, for the idea of going back to that coping skill to make us frustrated and feel like maybe we haven't really come as far as we thought. I want to first assure you that having the thought of self-harm of having the idea pop into your mind even in connection to the most mundane tasks is not the same as engaging in the behavior. So while it still hurts to have the thought come up, please know that it doesn't discount the progress that you've made. It's important to remember that the coping skills we engage in that are successful at relieving our anxiety, even temporarily, really have an impact on us. It almost teaches our brain that this is the preferred coping skill moving forward. We found relief from our pain, and we want to remember that for the next time we're in pain. This can be true of drinking when we're depressed or stressed out, engaging in self-harm when we're feeling anxious or empty inside, or even going for a walk out in nature to fight away sadness and isolation. When coping skills help us find relief, our brain holds on to them. And when we're back in those difficult situations, our brain trots them out and says, remember how this worked before? Why not try it again? Unfortunately, this is true for healthy and unhealthy coping skills. As to how to battle these thoughts, we'll turn to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Label these thoughts as intrusive thoughts. Remind yourself that these thoughts are automatic and not up to you. Accept and allow the thoughts into your mind. Don't try to push them away. Float and practice allowing time to pass. Remember that less is more. Pause. Give yourself time. There's no urgency. Expect the thoughts to come back again and continue whatever you were doing prior to the intrusive thought while allowing the anxiety to be present. Now here's some things you should try not to do. Try not to engage with the thoughts in any way. Push the thoughts out of your mind or try to figure out what your thoughts mean or check to see if it's working to get rid of the thoughts. It's just important to remember that when intrusive thoughts pop into our mind, which happens to all of us, the best thing to do is to label them as intrusive thoughts and just move on with our life. If we engage in them and try and fight them and try and battle them or prove them wrong, it can actually give the thoughts power. It shows that they're worth having to fight, which makes them come back again and again and again. It's also important to really focus on learning some healthy coping mechanisms that we can go to when we're stressed or anxious to help replace the unhealthy ones. It's a lot harder to stop doing or thinking about a certain behavior without something to replace it in times of stress. Hang in there and know that we're praying for you anonymous wraps us up i've been reading a book that talks about soul ties from prior relationships and how we have to be rid of these to carry forth our sexuality in a healthy marriage is this something you can speak to it seems there's a lot of contradictory info between the psychology of sexuality and the church some of what i've been reading and thinking about in particular in regards to our sexuality is normal yet this seems to me to justify lust where is the balance while keeping true to our faith and not berating ourselves constantly. I come from a bit of a wild college experience and found that I still am bothered by my former behavior back then, also during my drinking days, but have confessed it and still can't seem to let it go. It is a totally pure mind, something I'm only going to get on the other side of this life. Let's join together in prayer for Anonymous and for everyone else working through trying to find freedom from a past that continues to haunt us. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First off, I haven't heard of soul ties. I looked it up and uh, this is what it's defined as a linkage in the soul realm between two people. It links their souls together, which can bring forth both beneficial results or negative results. In all honesty, this sounds like some damaged chastity talk kind of stuff to me. Are there things that we carry with us from past relationships into new relationships? Absolutely. Everything that has happened to us in our lives shapes us into the person that we are in this present moment. Do we have to somehow get rid of these connections before we move forward in our lives? I mean, it's good to work through things, but the idea that there's some kind of tie between our souls seems like a bit of a stretch. I think it's always a great idea to get involved in taking care of our mental and emotional health as we move into new relationships. Even going to therapy to get ourselves better able to move beyond our past is a great idea. But we all come into relationships as broken individuals. This is the basic human condition. And even with all of that baggage, we are still worthy of love, still worthy of being treated right, and still worthy of a relationship that helps us become the person we were meant to be and we're still able to give love. It's interesting that you asked about the balance between keeping true to our faith and not berating ourselves because this is something I've thought about. Probably all of us have, but I had this thought. What if being true to our faith is refraining from berating ourselves and beating ourselves up? Jesus loves us no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, and part of moving forward in our faith journey may be working to see ourselves as he sees us, and loving ourselves in spite of all of our baggage. It's important to remember that God wants to make us saints, not some idealized version of us with a perfect heart and a pure mind, but the real us, the broken us, the us that makes mistakes and can't let them go even though we've brought them to confession. That's the person he wants to make a saint. You're right that we won't have a pure mind until we reach the other side, but it's also important to remember that the thoughts and memories that pop into our minds typically do so without our consent, which is one reason why they bother us so much. And because of that, it's not sinful. It doesn't mean that we're an impure person or that we're not moving forward in a better life guided by Christ in His church. It means that we're human beings who are doing our best to live a good life in spite of our human nature. So please know that we'll be praying for you and also consider how amazing it is that you're at this point where you're seriously thinking about these things rather than just going through life without a care for your relationship with our Lord. It says a lot about who you are as a person and a lot about what God is doing in your life. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you like. Be sure to check out patreon.com grexley to see all the great things they have going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimphna.